What do you say we take our Bibles and we feast on another paragraph in 1 Corinthians 5? Can we do that together? Take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and while you're turning there, let me be extremely clear on this, that everything the church is and everything the church does rests on the finished work of Christ, including church discipline. Yes, that element that we think sometimes is difficult and hard and, you know, what does that got to do with really church? The, the truth is, even that, and especially that, rests on the finished work of Christ. That's the essential point I'll be driving home today in a variety of ways. And I'm drawing it from an eight-word phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. We're going to see our, in our third paragraph that this really forms the, the central uh, foundation for the whole chapter and this third paragraph. In fact, I want you to picture these eight words as a rock for a minute. And so mentally, just image uh, this rock in your hand. And what I want to do is I want to drop the rock of this eight-word phrase into the pond of your heart in a moment. And I want to watch it ripple out. And my prayer is that the ripples will astound you and change you as we see God's word just kind of affecting our life. So before we dive into that, a quick review of why we're in 1 Corinthians 5 and what we're doing this month. We are in a month-long series on the counterculture church and specifically one thing that makes us counterculture, and that is church discipline. By definition, church discipline is a humbly restorative action by which a church removes an unrepentant member from its, uh, the benefits of its fellowship so that the church... Uh, displays distinction, pursues purity, provides protection with the hope of lovingly drawing the sinning person to return in repentance. That's the definition of it. We draw that from, like I said, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 5. Here's our roadmap through that chapter. We've been covering all four paragraphs. Uh, we're going to cover all four paragraphs in this month. We covered, of course, paragraph one in week one, two in week two, and we come now to paragraph three, which is really Paul's reasoning for church discipline. And it's contained in verses 6 through 8. And within this paragraph is this rock that I was mentioning to you, this eight-word phrase that I think beautifully shows why we're to engage in this action called church discipline. So with your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it's the very last phrase in this verse, so it's, referred to as 1 Corinthians 5, 7b. Here's what this phrase says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, now, would you just read that and say that with me together? Ready? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, when you see that simple eight-word phrase that we've just now dropped into the pond of our heart, we're going to see how it ripples out in a few moments, I suspect one thing comes to your mind for sure, like perhaps you're wondering, what is a Passover lamb? And so there's some imagery in play here. There's a metaphor being used by Paul, and there's some history that's necessary. So let me take a little bit of time and kind of bring you up to speed on why Paul would use this image, this metaphor, and what it means, okay? Paul is referring here to an event that occurred in Israel's history. They had been in captivity to Egypt, for multiple centuries. And God called a man named Moses to go to Egypt 
and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses did that, but Pharaoh did not have really good ears. He wasn't listening. And so he kept Israel in bondage and he made them as slaves. No matter what Moses would say, Pharaoh would not listen. So God sent 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh. He didn't listen to any of those either until the 10th one. And the 10th one was the death of the firstborn. But God warned and prepped Israel by saying this, that the death angel that I'll send to judge Pharaoh and Egypt for their sin, he won't come to your house if you take a lamb, sacrifice it, and take its blood and put it over the door and on the sides of the door. And if I see this, then when the death angel comes to your house to judge, he said, I'll see the blood and I will pass over you. And so since that event, Israel has celebrated the Passover, the moment when God delivered them from Egypt. See, on that night, many of the Israelites, God's people did exactly that. The Egyptians did not. And so there was weeping and mourning all throughout Egypt. And of course, God's people at that moment fled. Pharaoh said, get out of here. And so they are delivered by God's powerful hand. It's their exodus. It's described in Exodus 11 and 12, by the way. So, so that evening, that event in which God delivered his people from Egypt and called them unto himself and made them his distinct, distinguished people among the nations is what Paul's referring to here when he talks about this Passover lamb. You see, what God did for Israel physically in the sacrifice of a lamb and its blood over the doorpost, God does spiritually for us through the blood of his son and delivers us from sin. So that's what Paul is saying here. That Christ is actually the ultimate fulfillment of that physical lamb. He's the spiritual lamb. He's the lamb of God, John would say. And so he's delivered us from the metaphor being of, of, of sin. He's delivered us from sin and, and, and bondage. And he's called us to be his distinct people. In fact, I would contend with you this, that it's, it's in the exodus that we see God making some of his most pronounced moves and calling his people out to be a counterculture people among the nations. Yes, he started with Abraham, but it was in the Exodus that he called them out. And then he gave them a set of laws by which they would relate to him, a set of laws that really related only to them. He put his presence in their midst in a tabernacle, eventually the temple, and they became a light to the nations, the Old Testament would say. And so really from the Exodus forward, we see God in, in very visible, remarkable ways, distinguishing his people unto himself. This all started in that fashion with the Passover lamb and their exodus from Egypt. And so again, here's the rock. God has done for us in Christ spiritually what he did for the Israelites physically. And if you're tracking with me, just kind of nod. You with me? That's what he's referring to here. Now there's one more bit of history I want you to have. Because the Passover was a one evening, kind of twilight, one day event. But it was also the uh, uh, the beginning, I should say, of then seven more days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so what they would do in these seven days is they would have a, a national gathering on the first and the seventh day. Kind of, there would be like Sabbaths. And for every day in that time period, they were not allowed to eat any leaven. And in fact, they weren't allowed to have any leaven in their home. They had to search their homes and scour their residences for any kind of leaven and get rid of it. And so for, for one week, they lived with no leaven in their cooking, no leaven in their house, not in their food or anything. 
Because leaven represented in that culture sin. It was a metaphor for their bondage. And so God said, for for a week, I want you to live without leaven, knowing that you are now called to be my people. You're distinct. You're distinguished. You're free from that old lifestyle. So do you see kind of a picture happening? Redemption and exodus on the first day. And then for a week, he says, I want you to live as the people you actually are. My called out, distinct, distinguished, set free from sin people. And so they did this on an annual basis. It's called the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, I believe that Christ ultimately fulfilled every bit of that. And so there's no need now to continue that. But often many Jews do. And I don't think it's wrong to observe that for the right reasons. It's this eight days of remembering Christ's death and then a week of remembering how he's freed us from sin and living with that as our goal. So so that's what Paul's referring to here. You're going to see some allusions to those, not just the Passover, but to that week. That's important history and imagery to have in mind as we take this rock and drop it into our heart. Because Paul's providing for us the reasoning for everything around it. So here's the rock. Let's say it together. Ready? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, we've just dropped it into the pond of our heart. Now, what are its ripples? What does this mean? Because I would say to you that this eight-word phrase not only forms the real centerpiece of this paragraph, I think it forms the centerpiece of this whole chapter. It's why any of this chapter can happen and should happen. So let me just take the third paragraph. There are two effects from this, two things that now occur because of this reality. One concerns who we are and one concerns what we do. And to help explain this, I want to take you into our lab for a little bit this morning. Now, if you've been here for a few years, you know that there are times I'll actually hook up my iPad and I'll walk you through how I kind of dissect a passage of Scripture. I'll do it with you live. For the sake of time this morning, I'm going to do that via some pics of how I've diagrammed and analyzed this section of Scripture. I'd encourage you to mark in your Bible. You may not have different colored ink today. But make some notes in your Bible because I think you'll see how this singular eight-word phrase, this rock, you'll see its ripples now really clearly. So first of all, you see there the eight-word phrase, right? And it begins with a four, and it, it also has a four after it. Do you see that? The beginning of verse, uh, excuse me, the end, the beginning of this phrase at the end of verse seven, for Christ, meaning he's now saying this phrase to undergird something he said previously, And then the beginning of verse eight, he says, let us therefore. So he's also made this statement to set up something he's going to say next. So this statement is crucial to what's before and after it. What's before it? Let's read verse six. He says to them, your boasting is not good. That's a reference back to verse two. They're pride. They're pride about this sin. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's reminding them that sin is infectious. It it speedily spreads. And he's saying there's just a little leaven, speaking of this unrepentant sinner that's refusing to acknowledge his sin. He said it's going to affect the whole church. So he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And then watch this incredible phrase here. As you really are unleavened. Now, 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 I need to warn you, this is going to be uh, hard to grasp two competing concepts for a bit. Because we've been looking at how this church has been proud about their sin. They're holding on to it. And Paul's, in one sense, scolding them for not dealing with it. 
But then he says now, oh, by the way, you actually are without sin or unleavened, using the imagery from the Passover and the unleavened, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, you really are unleavened. Like, wow. So you have on one hand how we, how we live with our struggles and sin. And then you just have here how God sees us. You have our practical reality and our positional reality. You have a, a frustrating reality and a freeing reality, right? We live in both worlds. You have to be able to hold both realities. This is not new biblical language. Ephesians chapter one, Paul would talk to these believers and say, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. I'm like, really? Today I feel more like I'm messed than blessed and I'm just struggling and battling. You ever felt that way? In Romans eight, Paul says, we're, we're under no condemnation that we're more than conquerors. Yet there's some days I feel like I can barely get to the battlefield. What do you mean more than a conqueror? Now, I'm not the only guy in the room thinking this. I, I think you're wondering it too, like, man, okay, we really are unleavened. This is what Christ's sacrifice has done. It's positioned us as in God, in Christ, holy, set apart, without sin, justified, righteous. Yes, that's how God sees you in Christ. That's not always your experience though. And this is why it's so important not to hinge your salvation on your feelings, but on God's faithfulness. It is because of Christ's work for you that God sees you as holy, righteous, set apart. Is your experience always that? No. Is mine? No. But aren't you glad God's not looking through the filter of your experience, but instead the filter of the cross? Amen, church. Could somebody say hallelujah? Amen. And so this is what Paul is saying here. Guys, you're struggling. I'm, I'm, I'm having to really come to you with some hard language. I'm calling you to obedience. Why don't you begin to live up to who you actually are? Live like the Lord sees you. And he's basing who they are on this phrase that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we see that the death of Christ settles who we are. By the way, he also calls them unleavened in the last part of verse 8. If you're marking your Bible, just note the mention of the word unleavened there. Circle it and draw it back to the word unleavened in verse 7. He's saying, this is what you are. Now live up to that. And that's affected and possible because of Christ's work for us. But then he addresses this fact. He says, not only does Christ's work for us affect who we actually are, but it affects what we do. And there are two verbs I want you to notice. It's the verb cleanse and the verb celebrate. Do you see those? Circle those. Because these reflect and talk about what we do. One somewhat, I don't want to use the word negative, but it's, it's, maybe I could use the word difficult. It's cleansing out the, the leaven. It's the same thing talked about in verse two. It's removing the unrepentant sinner from among you. It's what verse 13 says. It's purging the evil person from among you. This is counterculture language. It's difficult to hear, but the word of God is quite clear. Wouldn't you agree? That when there's blatant, unrepentant sin, the body of Christ needs to take action. There's a process for that. We do it in love and compassion, but we don't tolerate unrepentant, blatant, embraced sin. Why? Because that's not who we actually are. Again, it comes back to who we are 
And, and Christ worked to make us that. So live up to, live out what we actually are. Let our behavior match our identity. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. And then he says to celebrate the festival. Here's another one of those verbs that describes what we do. He means to participate, observe, and to be part of living your life. Watch this, not with malice and evil. The words indicate there this kind of hypocritical, non-congruent walk and talk. You know, malice, this idea that you're acting one way over here, but you have an under the radar kind of intention. There's a secret dubious agenda in play and no one can tell it by your actions, but you're working a, another, uh, you know, kind of to another end and it's an evil end. So he's speaking here against hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. He says, we don't celebrate the Christian life. We don't walk with God in that fashion. We actually celebrate the festival. We remember Christ with sincerity and truth. The words there reply to our internal motives and our external actions. In other words, there's consistency in what we are saying on the inside and what we're doing on the outside. Now, the phrase celebrate the festival, it's one word in the Greek language. It may refer to the Lord's table specifically. It may mean that when you go to participate in the Lord's Supper and eat the spiritual meal, you should not do it while you're harboring sin and saying one thing on the outside, but on the inside, it's something totally different. He said, that's, that's not congruent. It's not consistent. That's malice. It's evil. That's what he calls it. He said, instead, we should approach the Lord's table with sincerity, purity. It could also mean just your general way of Christian living. In other words, knowing that as a Christian now, we don't live under sin's dominion and power and authority. We live to God. We're his distinct people. I tend to land on the second, by the way, that he probably here has more of a general direction in mind that as God's people, man, we're to live not with a hypocritical posture, not to harbor sin and pretend like we're part of the church, the body of Christ, the one who's purchased us from sin, but yet we harbor it and, and, and to entertain it. But we're to live pure and sincere lives. That doesn't mean we live perfect lives. Are you with me? But when we sin, we repent. We confess. So there's this constant environment of like, you know, repentance and confession that we're God's people and he takes care of that and we walk with him in obedience and pursue holiness and chase after him. I think that's what he's after here. I would say, however, that the first view, seeing this as a specific reference to the Lord's Supper, does fit well with the word eat in verse 11. Because the word eat in verse 11, when he says not to even eat with such a one, I think that refers to communion. So he may be saying here, whatever you do, don't gather as God's people and partake of the Lord's Supper all the while knowing that you're, you're not living like you belong to Christ. So just some food for thought. My point is to show you the two verbs though. That this is what we do and how these two verbs also connect to the middle phrase. In other words, Christ's finished work, his sacrifice for us, do you see it? It's affecting who we are and what we do. So I don't know who's listening in the room, who's watching by way of the internet, who's listening later through our podcast, but can I just push pause for a minute and say this to you? If you are banking on anything else making you right with God, I would pastorally plead with you. I would appeal to you. The only way you'll find victory over sin, forgiveness from sin, the power to live free from sin is through Christ, our Passover lamb. 
Church, listen, he has freed you from Egypt. Trust him and live unto what he knows he can bring to you, and that is deliverance and freedom. And I would urge anyone here who's yet to trust Christ to do exactly that and leave a life of sin in Egypt, so to speak, and run to God, our true deliverer. Now, I need to bring one more point of emphasis here to you, one that I've been chewing on all week that has just made my heart just leap and sing for joy. And it's actually rooted in some grammar. So if you're a grammarian, you'll probably like this a lot. Uh, but the Bible is, you know, written in a different language. And so understanding how it's written as well as some of its structure can often unearth for us interesting insights. Here's one that I found very helpful this week. Uh, and it involves the moods of the different verbs. Now, when I say a mood, I could use the word mode, but uh, a mood or a mode is simply the force of the verb. So we say there's an, in, um, or the phrase, even if we say something's in the indicative mood or the indicative mode, we're saying that it has a certain kind of force about it. It just is, it's a reality. If we say something's an imperative, an imperative mode or an imperative mood, that's got a different force, doesn't it? In other words, I better get to it. I got a command to obey. So you have these different moods or modes of verbs and phrases. There's an, there's an intriguing use of those in this verse that I want to bring out to you because I think it's, a, it's an interesting morsel that you should chew on. Notice what I've written here, and I want you to see this. The rock that we dropped into the pond of our heart, that's an indicative mood phrase. It's, it's, a, it's a statement about a reality. In other words, you don't get to vote on this. You don't need to discuss it. You can't change it. It's just a reality. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Can we smile with joy at that? God didn't need your permission. You can't undo it. It is. It's indicative. Likewise, the, the phrase above it is an indicative. And because of what Christ did, those who believe, we're just his people. We're holy, beloved, set apart, justified, adopted, righteous. God sees us in Christ as holy. Like, you don't have to feel that way. You may say, man, I'm struggling, but guess what? God sees you through Christ, not your feelings. Can we just say, praise God for these two realities? Amen, right? This is the structure of the sentence. This is the way it is. Paul is declaring realities that you don't get to change your vote on or effect. They are. Christ has died. We are God's people. What flows out of this are the two verbs. And they are essentially the imperatives. Now, you'll notice that the bottom verb, celebrate, is actually a subjunctive. Now, that's a technical way uh, that's, I mean, it is a subjunctive mood or mode, but here's what I think about subjunctives, and this is the way I put it. I'll give it to you in, in a non-seminary language. A subjunctive is an imperative in the making because a subjunctive is, is a statement about the future. You're saying what you really hope to see them do. You're making a statement about, man, you're, you, I know you're gonna, you're gonna knock it out of the park. You're, gonna, you're giving that a desire. You hope that they'll obey. You intend for them to obey it. But technically, it's not an imperative. It's more like this strong desire. But really what it is, is it's a command that you hope that they will obey in the future. So we call that a hortatory subjunctive, but I call it an imperative in the making. The previous verb, cleanse, is an imperative because they should have been doing that. Paul's command is clear, get to it. So here's what I'm saying. What you have here, really, the force of both of these verbs are imperative. 
But where does Paul draw the motivation for the imperatives? He draws the motivation for these imperatives from the indicative. So church, I love the way God even uses grammar to open up scripture to us. Watch this. The indicatives always set the stage for the imperatives. We are God's people. Christ has paid the sin debt. He was the Lamb of God. So guess what? Go live like it. You can. The church can. It's not too much to ask to be counterculture, to stand against sin, to to chase hard after holiness. That's not too much to ask because God has done everything possible to make it happen. Christ has died. He's been our lamb and you are God's people. So so don't you love how the, God doesn't call you to do something without making it actually possible. He's not giving you some, um, you know, idealistic to-do list and saying, good luck getting that done and then kind of, you know, sneering at you in the end. God is saying, I've done everything necessary for you to live the way I've called you to live, to cleanse out the old leaven, to celebrate the festival with right hearts and right actions. You can do that because you know what? You are my people and Christ has died to make you that. Man, that that makes your heart just swell up with joy, doesn't it? So I hope you're seeing this. Hope you're seeing that this is just more ways to say that everything the church is and everything the church does, it rests on the finished work of Christ, including church discipline. That's tied to what Christ did for us. Now, before I try to sum this up in a single sentence for you, let me see if you had any questions texted in that maybe we could address. And Julian's telling me no. I was thinking today you might not because you'd probably be glued in on the pictures and you might not have a chance to text anything. I get that. It'll be open all week. Text them in if you have a question. I'll make sure Travis gets a chance to answer them for you. Is that okay, Travis? <laughs> Let me see if I can wrap this up in a single sentence for you. Then I'm going to have Travis come and help me with some application. This is a little more wordy than the first statement I made but it's the same general idea. Remember, I told you I was going to make this point in various ways. Here's the way I've crafted this sentence because I I want to apply it especially to church discipline. But here's what we need to understand from this paragraph now in this third week on being a counterculture church, that for the counterculture church, who we actually are, remember? Who we actually are and what we actually do, it's reasoned from and rests on what Christ actually did. He delivered us by his death. You see, that's not unreasonable to think that because Christ purchased us, we now belong to him. It's not unreasonable. We're not asking too much. God's not asking too much. It's not a crazy expectation. Are you with me? Christ purchased us. He died for us. We actually are his people. We're distinct, distinguished. So for all who believe in him, he's our master, not sin. So it's reasonable to assume that he then would ask us to obey him and love him because he purchased us. So it's reasoned from and rest on that singular truth. So if sometimes you, you, know, you struggle with being counterculture or living with the fact that you are counterculture, even if you have never do anything, it's just the fact that being a Christian in this culture has its own set of consequences. It's not because you're inventing that. You're not necessarily being sandpaper. You're not trying to be abrasive. It probably just comes to the territory. Christ's death actually makes you distinct. He delivered you from your, from your Egypt. 
He's given you your exodus. He's made you his own. And now what he expects, what he, what he commands is for us to live up to who we actually are in Christ. This is not too much to ask. In fact, if you think it is, how would you respond if, if in my preaching I always talked about Julie and how much I love her and I'd share different tidbits about our marriage and, and you just were watching us as a husband and wife and you're like, man, Todd loves Julie. And then on certain nights of the week you find me going over to other women's homes and spending the night with them. You'd be like, that's, that's not reasonable. That's distasteful. That's, that's beyond distasteful. It's wrong. Like, Todd, you can't say one thing over here in, to your church and then, and then sleep around on your wife. You can't do that. You would not think it's unreasonable for Julie to say, hey, that's not gonna work. But I find it amazing how many people think God is unreasonable for asking for spiritual monogamy. And too many church members do not take sin seriously. And while we say we're the bride of Christ, we're sleeping with sin. No wonder Paul would say, cleanse out the old leaven and celebrate what you really are. Don't live and harbor sin. Be to Christ the beautiful, monogamous, exclusive bride that he knows you actually are. I trust that's what we will aim for and trust God for as we live as a counterculture church. Now, with that kind of stirring in your soul, let me ask Travis to join me for a minute to make one application, then we'll land this plane. Because I, I, I've tried to leave you in a certain place this morning. I wanted to leave you kind of uh, grappling with two realities. Okay, I see my positional identity. I see the reasonable expectation. Man, I also see my... Uh, my practical reality, like, man, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm dealing with sin. Like, I get that. So well, I'm asking, how can we balance identity and behavior? What can a member of First Family do? This is what I'm asking Travis. Help our members. How can they hold both of these together so they're not frustrated, but free to live and serve the Lord? So can you bring some insight maybe to that, to those we might call them competing realities? Help us balance those. Yeah, it's just a reminder of who you identify with you actually are, which is what we've explained. Let me try to illustrate that. Um, right now, it's a great time to be a sports fan. There's more sports that you, you could watch than, than you desire to. Every sport right now is playing. And so it's really exciting to be a sports fan. And so I identify as a Detroit Lions fan which is really hard to do, but I do. I identify <laughs> as a Detroit Lions fan, but the reality is the Detroit Lions care nothing about me. I've been a Detroit Lions fan my entire life. 
uh, and they don't even know it, and they don't even care. Uh, so all my life, I've, I, I've kind of waved that flag, and I've watched their games, and I've cheered for them. And, and so I say, I say I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm, but I, I, don't, I don't get a jersey. I don't get to play. Even the year they went 0-16, my phone never rang. They never, they never asked. Like, Travis, we're struggling. Could you show up? I never got asked. They don't, they don't care about me. It's interesting, too. The Detroit Lions, they, they don't care about my morality either. I've never been drug tested by the Detroit Lions. When I, when I bash the ownership, I never get fines. They never fine me for doing that. Um, they really don't care if I show up to practice. They actually prefer that I don't. Even though I identify, my actions don't matter. There could be nothing farther from the truth than with Christianity. For those who say, I believe in Christ, you don't just cheer for Jesus. You're actually in, which is what verse 7 says. You have been bought. You've been purchased. So you get the jersey. You're on the team. And you are immensely valuable to Christ. And that's why your actions matter so much. Because what you do during the week either helps the name of Christ or dishonors the name of Christ because you're on the team. And that's why church discipline is a blessing and essential. Mm. Is because for those of us who sit here, we're not merely spectators, we're participants. And everything we do from the moment we leave this building, we still represent the name of Jesus. And so how you identify is inseparable with how you act because you're on the team. You get the jersey and everything you do matters. You've been bought, you've been purchased, and therefore we must cleanse and we must celebrate because how we live matters. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying let's not be fans. Right but let's be players. Yeah, we have to be. We Amen. are. We are players. That's right. Travis, thanks so much. Yeah. Hope you hear that well. And, and Travis and I want you to know, on behalf of our elders, and I think I'd speak for any of our leaders as well, this kind of lifestyle, this identity behavior that needs to match, this, this reality, these indicatives, we'll call it, man, this is the high-octane fuel that you need for your, for your life's tank. This is, in essence, the gospel. I mean, Travis and I were talking earlier. Isn't it interesting that in a passage directly aimed at the church, Paul puts at the centerpiece a succinct eight-word summary of the gospel. We often think, well, the gospel's for those who aren't saved yet. No, the gospel's for those who aren't saved, and it's for those who are saved. It's for every single part of our life. And the gospel is the high-octane fuel that you need to put in your tank in order to cleanse and celebrate. So this morning, we've dropped the rock into the, heart, or the pond of our heart. We've seen its ripples, who we are, what we do. Now, now will you just let that overwhelm you and live in the, in the beauty of the scripture? God says you actually are his people, holy and spotless. And what do you say? We put our put that gas in our tank and let's live up to who God says we actually are. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.